Hello everyone, I'm Paris Fox and I'd like to welcome you to 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox hosted by Richard Lummis. What makes a great leader? Is it genetic or can you learn leadership skills? Join Tom Fox and Richard Lummis in this podcast where they consider leadership from a wide variety of perspectives, academic, behavioral science, history, popular culture, the movies, and much more. You'll learn about specific tactics and strategies that you can bring to your own leadership toolkit. 12 O'Clock High is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, this is Richard Lummis. I'm here with Tom Fox for another episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast about leadership. In these discussions, we draw what we hope are interesting examples from our own experiences in history, business, literature, and politics to examine what constitutes good leadership and extract lessons we can use to improve our own leadership skills. Welcome back, Tom. Thank you, Richard. Uh, We're recording this uh, in accordance with our custom of previous years with uh, about a series of best picture-winning films from the Oscars. And we try to pick ones with leadership as a key theme to discuss. Today we're going to talk about Out of Africa, starring Meryl Streep and Robert Redford. It was based loosely on the book of the same name by Karen Blixen, uh, under her pen name Isaac Dennison, and apparently it's sort of a mashup of that and one called Shadows in the Grass. The movie won seven Academy Awards in 1985, including Best Picture and Best Director for Sidney Pollock, and it grossed $227 million on a budget of $28 million. The movie covers the 18 years or so that Blixen spent in Kenya beginning in 1913. She was Danish from a wealthy family, but after a failed romance, decided to move to Africa and enter a marriage of convenience with Swedish Baron Broer Blixen. The marriage got off to a rocky start when Broer invested her money in a coffee plantation at an altitude too high to be suitable for coffee, instead of in a cattle ranch, as they decreed. He also gave her syphilis, which caused her to go back to Denmark for a year for a lengthy cure. They eventually separated and divorced, but in the meantime, uh, Karen had entered a long-term love affair with Dennis Finch Hatton, an English big game cunner, who's the Redford character. Their relationship's really at the core of the movie, and only ended when Finch Hatton died in a plane crash, which was historically correct in 1931, and about the same time the coffee plantation failed, and so Karen Blixen moved back to Denmark to live with her mother for the rest of her life. The movie seems kind of disjointed to me, with a lot of threads that are slightly developed and then dropped. Broer's character, Karen's relationship with the Kikuyu people on whose ancestral land the plantation sits, and Karen's own motivations don't seem terribly well developed. The pacing has been accurately described as glacial. The cinematography is amazing, though, and I thought John Barry's score also fit the movie well, and it did win both of those Oscars. Tom, what did you think of this movie after 35 years? So the thing that I remembered from the first time I saw it in the theaters was the thing that struck me when I rewatched it for this podcast, Richard, which was the cinematography. Yeah. It was just absolutely stunning. Since it was filmed in probably 84 or 85, we have to assume those places actually still existed. Uh, I'm not sure today <laughs> they did. Uh, whether they existed in the 19-teens or 20s, I don't know, but the cinematography was just outstanding. Lots of aerial shots uh, back when we used to have aerial shots from planes or helicopters before drones, and uh, just uh, glorious color. A, a, uh, you're absolutely right about the pacing, but the painting of the screen with the colors just uh, 
I remember being overwhelmed at the movie theater and on the smaller screen of today, uh, it's still just uh, as outstanding. The Love Affair, uh, I found that interesting because, uh, first of all, no sex, so we didn't have to put up with that. Uh, but it was mainly, it seemed to me, um, the Meryl Streep character just talking about how much she loved him. And that was enough to show deep love. Uh, and the rest of us were supposed to know that, that yep, that's the way it was. Uh, so perhaps that's the dis- one of the disjointed parts. But I thought there were some, uh, some lessons for leadership that we could tease out of this uh, movie. So um, if I could maybe start with uh, Karen Blixen. Um, the, uh, and really the first one I wanted to, to talk about is, uh, you mentioned the, uh, the name of the people that, uh, whose land she was on and the cultural differences. And here I would just challenge uh, any business leader, what are the cultures in your organization? If you're a multinational organization, what are the cultures outside of the United States? How well do you know those cultures? In my uh, life as an anti-corruption specialist, the U.S. Department of Justice uh, emphasizes culture as a key component of whether or not your company is really even going to embrace compliance and or get in trouble. So, uh, and that's a culture of, of doing the right thing. Well, do you have that same culture in every uh, different culture within your organizations? And what about subcultures within your organizations? Um, do those exist? And how well do you know that? How well do you, does your management team, have they assessed culture, managed culture, and uh, uh, utilized culture uh, going forward? Uh, uh, two weeks ago, we had the world's largest anti-corruption settlement involving Airbus. And I interviewed a French compliance practitioner this morning about what her lesson, the lesson she garnered from that case. And she said, it's culture. It is the board of directors. Did they know what their culture is? And she didn't think that they did. Uh, And when they found out, that's when they self-disclosed to uh, British authorities, leading to a multi-jurisdictional investigation. So as a business leader, what's the culture of your organization? And when I say leader, I mean starting with the board of directors, through CEO and senior management, into middle management, uh, and then down. Each level, what's the culture? And more importantly, is at the top of your organization, are you aware of what your culture is, or uh, do you just have a bunch of yes men blowing smoke up your backside? Yeah. Well, her relationship with the KQU was, was an interesting one, and it's come in for a fair amount of criticism for the uh, excessively paternalistic view, um, which I think is is uh, not, not chronologically correct, but... Um, but you're absolutely right, and although she tries to understand the traditions of the locals, she doesn't do a perfect job of it. Um, among other things, um, they have very different views of the future. The chief, in one scene, uh, she's trying to teach them to read or get a, get a missionary to teach them to read while not teaching them to be Christians, which is kind of <laughs> not, not in his job description, but... Uh, but anyway, the um, the chief comes up and makes a mark on a pole and says, no one taller than this can learn to read because he didn't want the young men having a skill that he didn't have. Um, the ones who were smaller than that, he figured he'd be dead before they came along um, to threaten him. But I thought that was a, it's a... It was an interesting metaphor for how a lot of businesses uh, treat possible successions. Well, I, I, you know, when you said that, I really thought of uh, short-termism. 
Yeah. And uh, wh- what have you done for me this quarter? <laughs> uh, because in three quarters, I'll be dead. So, uh, and that's certainly why many of the people look at uh, Wall Street. Uh, and their reaction is, uh, what, what did the street say this quarter? Yeah. So. Um, well, Blixen's management of the coffee plantation, um, well, in the first place, they, they put it in the wrong spot. The altitude was too high to effectively grow coffee. Right. And then, of course, you lose five years while the trees mature. Um, so it was, it was economically a disastrous decision, but she was too stubborn to admit it, I think in part because it was a beautiful place. Yes. So. So there were some lessons that I came across, Richard, uh, doing research uh, about this movie from an Australian woman. Uh, I think her name is Jane Mansell. And she um, wrote about lessons from out of Africa in the context of uh, a safari she went on. And, and I thought these were interesting um, for a leader. Um, so I just wanted to, to go through those. Uh, one was the unpredictability of the journey. Uh, because in Africa, death can occur at any time. And I think in this day and age, in 2020, uh, perhaps that's even more true on the unpredictability of the journey. Uh, You don't know where your next risk is going to be because you don't have full access or knowledge as to who you're doing business with. You don't know all of your uh, third parties on the sales side. You don't know all of your third parties on the supply chain side. Uh, if they engage in some behavior uh, that blows back on your company, uh, it may be uh, you're completely unprepared for it. Uh, second is um, the cycle of life, and and that perhaps was um, made uh, a little more um, uh, knowledgeable or, or, or a little more uh, uh, used it, uh, by Disney uh, in The Lion King, but part of the circle of life is letting go. And that was one of the reasons uh, Karen Blixen failed, I think that you correctly noted, was she, she was too stubborn to let go. And that perhaps she could have cut her losses and done something else, but no, uh, she was determined to uh, stay on. Um, I think we can both safely say we have uh, kept doing things for too long uh, in the face of perhaps uh, economic information, which would have allowed someone else to make a different decision. So uh, I certainly think that uh, we both uh, have uh, engaged in that. But um, at some point, you do have to let go. And, and I've had businesses that failed. And at some point, I realized I had to let go and I moved on. The, the lesson I learned, uh, I hope, that perhaps I can convey is uh, if you're going to try a new business line, uh, give yourself a specific time frame. Uh, and don't yeah. <laughs> go ahead. And budget. And budget. <laughs> um, the next is, and this one uh, is certainly something that every leader needs to uh, embrace. The quietness is where learning comes from unexpectedly. As a modern business leader, your day is usually booked from 8 to 7 uh, with meetings, and then you work uh, before then and after then. Is when you try to do some thinking work. But what about quiet time? Um, one of the things that always I remember about Richard Nixon was that he said a president needed one hour a day of quiet time just to think. So as a business leader, do you have time to think? And do you have quiet time? Do you have time for, uh, not, I don't mean to suggest this is spiritual renewal, although perhaps that could certainly be a byproduct, but do you just have time to sit and think? Um, because you might come up with a new idea or you might come up with a new approach or you might synthesize the information that's been presented to you 
in a new and different way. So quietness, and certainly uh, Africa and safari can be a place of quietness. Well, and I think you're absolutely right. In the modern world, there's a tendency to feel that every minute should be filled with answering emails or uh, returning phone calls or catching up on the news on the Internet. There's endless opportunities to eat up your time, and I don't know about an hour a day, but certainly 20 or 30 minutes might be helpful for everybody. Uh, The next one I really liked uh, as well, which is leadership is not knowing. Um, I think we have finally gotten to to the place where it is acceptable for a leader to say, I don't know, but I will find out. Uh, Certainly, I grew up in a world where a leader was expected to know the answer. And if you didn't know the answer, that disqualified you from being the leader. Well, um, if you surround yourself with smarter people, you can get the answer. And so it's okay not to know, uh, but it's not okay not to study up if you've been presented with a true issue that you need to decide on. So it's acceptable uh, not to have the answer immediately. Yeah, and I I guess that is a change, uh, but it's simply not possible to know everything anymore. Um, And you're probably better off relying on uh, smarter people, smarter, harder-working people that you've managed to hire and pay very little. (laughs) Richard, next, um, uh, we talked about this in a prior podcast, but uh, the movie, once again, brought up for me business resiliency. Uh, We talked about that in terms of uh, the failure of the coffee plantation. Um, I think um, here we didn't have failure because of a catastrophic disaster. Here we had a business that was going to be extraordinarily difficult to succeed given uh, where it started from. Any thoughts? Well, I mean, one of the things I thought was was great was in that same article by the Stevenson Manzel group about the acronym of VUCA, which they got out of the military, which um, describes the situation as volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, <laughs> <laughs> which is probably not the best place to be, but it certainly describes a great deal of life. So uh, do you think a movie still holds up today, Richard? You know, the cinematography and the scenery certainly did. There are some other stuff in it that I like. The, um, the character of Finch Hatton, uh, Redford's performance has come in for a lot of criticism as being too wooden. But uh, one of the uh, reviews I read pointed out that he really didn't have a role to perform um, other than just looking pretty and, and uh, standing in the scenery. Um, but, for instance, one of the things he did that I thought was, was good was he was constantly scouting and uh, analyzing. And he adopted technology in the form of the biplane. Um, he was reckless in some ways. According to the movie, he learned to fly in a day, which is not historically correct. He actually went through a standard pilot training program. But, um, but he was very methodical in his preparation for going on safari. Um, he used the plane to do reconnaissance for where the game was, but also where his competition was um, and, and how to avoid them. Um, he did treat his subordinates very poorly. Um, at one point, he, he instructs Blixen to simply ignore his companion. Um, but the, uh, I think the movie holds up. Um, it's more of a chick flick than I remembered, um, but it's, it's still a lot of fun. Right. 
So uh, I certainly agree on the cinematography. Also, uh, if I could say another word about the soundtrack, I thought it was just big and sweeping and everything yeah. that a, uh, such a production of Africa should be in terms of a soundtrack. The aerial photography was just fabulous. The um, It's interesting your characterization of uh, the Robert Redford character. Um, I felt like, uh, I guess I felt like he really had no role other than to just stand around and be Robert Redford. <laughs> I remember at one point he was uh, laying down an ivory tusk, and even in 1987, uh, the hunting of elephants, uh, if not banned, uh, we was certainly frowned upon, so that made an impression because certainly uh, the hunting of ivory has changed uh, quite a bit. But uh, I really uh, appreciated your comments around the, his embracement of technology and how he could bring what was a technological innovation, uh, the biplane, uh, in Africa, to a uh, time-honored business, which still is, Safari, and was at the time. And utilizing that information, or utilizing the tool, the technological tool of the biplane, to garner information to make his business uh, more efficient and better for his stakeholders in the form of his customers, but also, as you correctly note, uh, around his competitors as well. He could also use it as risk management to scout out locations that were appropriate and or inappropriate. Uh, so the embracement of technology is, um, we've now done a series of podcasts uh, over uh, several hundred years, and it's been fun to see people who do embrace technology. That's not a new phenomenon. Well, and we tend to think that we're undergoing a period of absolutely unprecedented change. But the first time we see Finch Hatton, he's using an ox cart. And that would have been in 1915 or eight, maybe as late as 18. Um, I guess in the movie it's set in 1914. Um, but he, immediately after the war, he adopts motor cars to, uh, to safari use. And then he adopts the plane. And when you think about the rate of change that he was adapting to, it's not that much different. Uh, absolutely correct. And then if you overlay in Africa on that and how much change that meant in Africa, let alone a developed country at that point in time, uh, you're absolutely correct. So um, it, the movie was still fun to watch. Um, you're right about the rom-com. Um, perhaps not as much calm, but uh, certainly a romantic picture, chick flick. My wife certainly enjoyed watching it. Um, Robert Redford is one good-looking man, uh, so I think we all have to acknowledge that. And he was at the peak of his powers uh, in the 80s. Meryl Streep is, uh, is uh, no shrinking violet herself, uh, one of our greatest actresses. But for me, it was, just, it was the cine cinematography. It was the scenery. It was Africa that was the star for me. And, yeah, uh, put it on the biggest screen you can, you can find. Um, it, it's really worth it. Well, that's it for now. Um, until next time, this is Richard Lummis and Tom Fox with 12 O'Clock High. We hope you'll join us next time. This is Paris Fox again. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership with Tom Fox. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and rate the podcast. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.